Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and I'm going to put all my cards on the table at the beginning this time and say that I don't think much of this episode. To me, it's plotting and predictable, although predictable is in the eye of the beholder. For example, Lindsay D. at the motionpictures.net says of this episode, the ending came as a complete surprise to me, too, which is always the mark of a good episode. So we could argue as to whether it's predictable or ponderous, and they may come down just to taste. But I think the thing that bothers me the most about this episode is that it withholds crucial information until right at the very end. Now, you can argue that the same thing happens in Hitchcock's Stage Fright, in which Jonathan Cooper's flashback turns out to not be particularly reliable. But then again, Jonathan Cooper is not the main character in Stage Fright. Here we have the main character withholding information. Now, you could further argue that the main character is withholding information from everyone, so why not withhold it from the audience as well? Well, it's a fair point, but I would reply that the focus on Lottie, the main character, is such that we as an audience can't help but identify with her, and in identifying, we assume that we are privy to her every secret, which, it turns out, we are not. That doesn't mean there aren't things to like in this episode. One thing I like is the way that Lottie, played by Thelma Ritter, reveals different aspects of her personality depending on who she's interacting with, whether it's the police sergeant, or her daughter, or Mr. DeMario, or Mr. and Mrs. Nash, or in particular, that give-and-take relationship that she has with Blanche, played by Mary Wicks. But still, ultimately, what you have is a script that tries to expand a good, short, short story into a half-hour television program, which is always a little problematic. More on that a little later. For now, let's get into our usual deep dive into the episode and see if that changes my opinion. So let's begin with Hitch. Except, wait a minute, the DVD set doesn't have Hitch's intro for this episode. Does that mean there wasn't one? Does that mean it's lost? No, I think actually what it means is that Universal slapped this set together without much care or concern about the details. To be fair, it may have been a little harder to find this intro back when the DVD set was put together than it is now, where it's readily available on YouTube. So here it is. Hitch is sitting on a park bench with a baby carriage in front of him. Each item that he mentions, he pulls out of the baby carriage, except for the earplugs. The hot lunch he refers to as a lunch pail, and the cold drink is a thermos. Good evening. Tonight's story is called The Babysitter. You know, I don't think taking care of a baby is any great chore at all, if you are properly prepared. I bring my comforts with me. A portable radio, a few books, a hot lunch, a cold drink, a heavy mallet, and if that fails, earplugs. Good heavens, I forgot the baby. Stay right where you are, I'll be back. So here's The Babysitter, first broadcast on May 6th, 1956, starring Thelma Ritter. 
teleplay by Sirrett Rudley, based on a story by Emily Neff, and directed by Robert Stevens. Now, whatever else I may think of the episode, I do love the opening with a close-up of Thelma Ritter as Lottie Slocum saying, Doomed. She doesn't realize it, but in the long term, she's talking about herself. But let's hear what she thinks she's talking about now. Doomed. Doomed to a violent end, that Clara Nash was. I'm telling you, Sergeant, doomed to a violent end. I know, Mrs. Slocum, you told me three times already, and I'm trying to find out, with your help, who murdered her. Oh, the horror of it all! So just in those first few seconds, we learn quite a bit. We learn that there's a woman named Clara Nash who's been murdered. We learn that Lottie is in some way involved in that, so that the police are interviewing her. And we also learn that she's overly dramatic about the whole thing. This is emphasized by the fact that Certainly in this early going, the camera loves Lottie and almost never leaves her. In the clip we just heard, we started with a close-up on Lottie. The camera pulls back so that we see she is sitting on a couch, with the police sergeant next to her and her daughter Janie standing behind her. By the time she says, Oh, the horror of it all! She gets up and moves over toward the fireplace. The camera goes with her. Janie and the police sergeant have to come to her, in order to get into the frame. When the camera angle changes again, it's to focus once again in on Lottie. We see the back of Janie's head. It's all very intimate, helping us to identify with Lottie. And it's exaggerated by the fact that this is essentially a bottle episode. There are only two apartments that cover all of our sets. A kitchen, a bedroom, and a living room in Lottie's apartment, and a main room, and a foyer, with a closet in the Nash's apartment. Mrs. Slocum, if you could just give me a few minutes of your valuable time, I think... My valuable time. Well, thank you very much, Sergeant. You hear that, Janie? The Sergeant wants a few minutes of my valuable time. Just goes to show how a person's whole life can be changed just by somebody getting murdered. That's a nice line, almost a laugh line. But it also demonstrates that for Lottie, it's all about her. But is it a good thing, or is it a bad thing? Lottie keeps trying to act like it's a bad thing, but we more and more get the sense that she thinks it's a good thing. Particularly when she starts talking about the flowers, given to her by the women's club. They are in the foreground as the camera switches to a long shot with the three characters in the background. Then Lottie walks toward the flowers, and the sergeant and Janie have to walk after her, following her, to join her in the foreground of the scene. Except that then the camera switches to a close-up of Lottie. She sits, and the camera joins her, so that Janie has to stoop down to get into the frame. And when she says, I just remembered something. The sergeant, anxious for any evidence, also leans down to join her in the frame. So this whole sequence consists of Janie and the sergeant trying to keep up and stay within Lottie's frame, only for the camera to shift and take it away from them again. It isn't until Lottie leaves the room that the camera stays with Janie and the sergeant. So we know who our guide is, and we think we know who we can trust. Here's that whole sequence. 
First, there was the flowers from the women's club with a very kind note of sympathy. Plus, an invitation to tell about my experiences oh, on the fatal night. And now the sergeant wants a few minutes of my valuable time. Well, let's face it, Janie. How much was my valuable time worth yesterday? 85 cents an hour, plus car fare. I was just a plain, simple babysitter. Ah. But look at me now. Mom, lie down for a while. The sergeant will come back later. I just remembered something. That's more like it, Mrs. Slocum. I sent my black taffeta to the cleaners, and it's never going to be back in time for that meeting of the women's club. Oh. So now we know that Lottie is a babysitter, if the title hasn't tipped us off to begin with. And it sounds like she babysat for Clara Nash on the night that Clara Nash was murdered. As a result, Lottie has become a minor celebrity, and people want to hear her story. And her slight smile in the midst of talking about this lets us know that she is, in fact, enjoying it. So much so that she's mostly concerned that her black taffeta dress won't be back from the cleaners in time for that women's club meeting. This clearly frustrates the sergeant. And after Lottie leaves, he's had enough. I'll be back. Oh, really, Sergeant, my mother's a wonderful woman. She just suffers from overact. That's the understatement of the year. The sergeant, by the way, is played by Ray Teal. We last saw him in episode number 16, You Got to Have Luck, as the prison warden. I gave a rundown of his career in that episode because I neglected him in his first appearance, episode number one, Revenge, in which he played the police lieutenant. He is in five more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. His next is My Brother Richard, episode 17 of season two, in which he continues his law enforcement ways by playing a sheriff. That episode, by the way, has a teleplay by Sarah Rudley, just as this one does. As the sergeant is leaving the apartment, he encounters Lottie's friend Blanche, who is just arriving. Mercy! Oh, you must be that detective. Say, I've got a few ideas about that murder. I'll bet you have. <laughs> well. And for just a moment, as she pauses by the door, we get a close-up of Blanche, the first close-up we've had of anybody other than Lottie, which seems to be telling us that Mary Wicks's Blanche is on a par with Thelma Ritter's Lottie. She at least is going to serve as a realistic foil to Lottie's romantic illusions. As such, they tend to share the screen when they're together, except when Lottie is evading or reacting to Blanche's reality. Blanche comes in with a paper sack and a newspaper, which has a big headline on it, of which we can read dead and flat. So it sure seems as if this murder is big front-page news. Lottie emerges from her bedroom regally and dramatically with an ice pack on her head. And we get the first instance of Blanche being the realistic pin to Lottie's balloon. There you are, Lottie. Boy, do you look a mess. Lottie stretches out on the couch, forcing Blanche to sit perched on the front part of the couch. Blanche pulls out the newspaper. Look at that. Babysitter questioned in murder. It's in every paper. Your name, your picture, everything. Gee, it makes a person afraid to go out on a job. 
You know, I was supposed to sit for the Thompsons tonight, but now... <laughs> I bet you never want to babysit again. Oh. oh, you'd always be imagining a killer was sneaking around or something. Oh, come on, Lottie. I bet you're just dying to tell me all about it. Huh? Move oh. over, will you? Lottie says, reasserting her dominance, reestablishing her domain. But Blanche knows Lottie's weakness. It's cherry chocolate with Tutti Frutti. She pulls out a couple of milkshakes. And because she's anticipated that it's going to be a long story... Well, don't worry. I got refills. Blanche pulls four milkshakes out of her paper sack as we get that music that we've had before, that sort of comedic music that makes us feel like maybe this is going to be a comedy. But it's not a comedy. So Lottie starts telling her story. You know how I've often said that sometimes a pretty face will do you more harm than good. Well, that Clara Nash was doomed to a violent end. The way she was carrying on, she deserved what she got. Oh, shame on you, Lottie. Go on. You know how particular I am about who I sit for. Yeah, well, I never would have sat for her. Except I had a soft spot in my heart for the boy and... and that wonderful Mr. Nash. What a gentleman he was. And the way she treated him, he deserved something better. Interestingly, we never do see the boy, but we do see Mr. Nash. After Blanche comes out with one of her practical romance-killing comments. Did you see the flowers the women's club sent? Oh! Potted plant would be less trouble. Lottie continues with her story. The way she's been carrying on. Since the separation, not even divorced, mind you. Running around with lounge lizards like that Mr. DiMario. He was the one that took her out last night before she was killed. Blanche, again, is ever practical. Listen. Do you think that DiMario did it? Who knows? Gives me the creeps. He's, he's the slippery type, you know? And speaking of slippery types, when Blanche asks Lottie if she thinks DiMario did it, she dissembles, and she loses eye contact with Blanche, starts looking away. Blanche doesn't notice this. She's too caught up in her theory. Well, why not him? Listen, he brings her home, see? They've been drinking, maybe. Then she asks him to drive you home to get rid of him. But he fools her. He comes back. Did act kind of peculiar in the car coming home. Never opened his mouth once except to say goodnight. It was kind of funny, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, as I say, anybody could have done it. They stay when they found her strangled. I don't even want to think about that. Again, Blanche is hard-headed, practical. But Lottie has some sort of romance going on in her head. And part of that involves the thought that Clara deserved her fate. But she doesn't want to know the details of that fate. And as Lottie balks at this, some serious music comes up. So maybe this isn't a comedy after all. She was never any good. Even right from the beginning, when I first started sitting for the Nashes, long before they were separated. Those words and that music lead us into a flashback. This is our third episode in a row with a flashback. After Never Again, which provides us with accurate memories, and The Gentleman from America, where we see the acting out of a story that may not be true. An indication of its unreliability is that it is done in mime, with the story read on top of it 
by our main character, Howard. Here again, the flashbacks are done in mime, with Lottie narrating on top of them, perhaps calling into question their veracity. Are these true recollections of the past? Or are these a silent movie melodrama, influenced by Lottie's biases and romantic notions? In the story, as Lottie tells it, she walked into the Nash's apartment on her own, with nobody answering the door, to find Clara Nash berating her husband, Charles Nash, who Lottie only ever refers to as Mr. Nash. So I'm going to keep referring to him as Mr. Nash. Clara is young, flamboyant, and attractive, wearing a strapless gown. Her husband is older, more conservative-looking. He appears to be closer to Lottie's age than to his wife's. And in fact, Carol Matthews, Clara, was 35 at the time, and Theodore Newton, Mr. Nash, was 51, while Thelma Ritter, Lottie, was 54. Let's take a look at both Carol and Theodore. Carol Matthews was born Jean Difel. Wikipedia says, born in Montgomery, Illinois, near Chicago, Matthews lived with her grandmother after her parents divorced. She attended elementary schools in Aurora, Illinois, and obtained her secondary education at Calumet High School in Chicago. After graduation from high school, she entered a nunnery in Milwaukee. Her grandmother made her leave it, however, telling her to wait until she was 21. Instead, when she was 18 years old, she became Miss Chicago and went on to Hollywood, where she appeared in some bit parts in films using the name Jean Francis. In 1942, she conducted a screen test for Samuel Goldwyn of MGM Studios. That same night, she married radio writer John Arthur Stockton in Tijuana, the scion of a wealthy Chicago family. Goldwyn immediately canceled her contract. In late January 1944, she had the marriage annulled, and she never remarried. This is an article from the September 20th, 1958 edition of the Lewiston Evening Journal entitled, Carol Matthews Scores as Actress, Was a Dancer. Carol Matthews changed directions in the middle of her show business career and turned the switch into a success. The versatile actress first strived for success as a dancer, and achieving it set her goal in another direction, acting. I came to Hollywood and watched several stars before the cameras while working as an extra. Then I decided to try acting, Carol says. I returned to Chicago and attended several terms at the Chicago Conservatory of Music and Drama, holding down a few other jobs in between. Then I came back to Hollywood and landed my first role, a speaking part in a Western, Carol recalls. Soon afterward, Milt Lewis of Paramount saw me in a play at the Pasadena Playhouse and signed me to a Paramount contract. Carol was born in Montgomery, Illinois, moving to Aurora at an early age. Her parents then went to Chicago, where Carol attended Calumet High School and played first violin in the school orchestra. Actually, she took her first important step toward success when she won a beauty contest in Chicago, which led to modeling and dancing jobs. So no mention here of a grandmother, a nunnery, or a marriage in Tijuana that was later annulled. I became a dancer at the College Inn, she says. Then, as a dancer, I traveled to all the big cities in this country and Canada. In Los Angeles, I landed in motion pictures as an extra. This is when I decided to act. I went back to Chicago and studied, started dancing again, going with a rumba troupe to Miami and South American cities. Then back again to Chicago, where I became one of the first female disc jockeys on WGN. 
The program was Breakfast Time Frolic with Carol Matthews. My program lasted 26 weeks. I returned to Hollywood and got my first break in the Western. Carol waited 18 months on the Paramount contract, but nothing exciting materialized. She went to New York, landed a lead in a play which lasted two weeks, and also a lead in an Archie Gardner feature. Archie Gardner is actually Ed Gardner, who played Archie on Duffy's Tavern. And he was also a producer of the film The Man With My Face, in which Carol Matthews appeared. During the stay in New York, she managed to get roles in most of the better-known TV shows. Returning to Hollywood, Carol went into the feature Meet Me at the Fair with Dan Daly. She has appeared in more than 50 westerns, including filmed TV and motion picture roles. During the time of this article, she was appearing in the western television program The Californians. I've always loved to travel, and I still have itching feet, Carol admits. Being in the Californians will give me a chance to rest for a bit and straighten up my home in San Fernando Valley. This is from the Valley News of Van Nuys, California, March 9, 1977 edition. An article entitled, Actress Finds Business Niche. In five and a half years, Carol Matthews, actress, high fashion model, Earl Carroll showgirl, radio disc jockey and writer, has developed a travel company into a $2 million a year business. She also maintains Hidden Valley Ranch in Reseda, where she raises pygmy goats, Muscovy ducks, chickens, rabbits, and breeds worms for casting. It all began when Carol the actress was chalking up motion picture and television credits by the handful back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And then her acting career seemed to dead end, as so often happens to some of the industry's talented people. Carol needed money, so she took a nighttime job to keep herself available for daytime interviews and studio calls, writing brochures for a Hollywood travel agency. She liked it so much, she decided to go into the travel business. Besides her Matthew Travel Center and Mini Ranch, her M&M Industries produces audiovisual travelogues and television dramas, and Carol writes many of the scripts. With all of these good things going for her, Carol Matthews is ready now to reactivate her acting career. But she says the directors and casting agents are all so young, they don't remember her. Catch me on the Late Late Show, I tell them. I may be a few years older, but the talent's the same. Unfortunately, IMDb only has two credits for her in 1977 and 1978. Deputy Ruth in an episode of Police Woman and Woman in Restaurant in the TV movie version of Fame. Carol is in one more episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Percentage, episode 14 of season 3. And Carol Matthews died in 2014 at the age of 94. This is an article from the Boston Globe, the January 20th, 1946 edition, entitled Concerning Theodore Newton, who will act a leading part in Deep Are the Roots. Theodore Newton, due here at the Colonial in Deep Are the Roots, is a recent resident of Hollywood. Mr. Newton was destined from the creaking cradle to be a red-headed, freckle-faced Princeton rooter. When he was a mere stripling, he just had to attend Pingree a swank prep school in Elizabeth, New Jersey, where his father was a member of the faculty. As all Pingree blindly went to Princeton, so did the young Newton. At Princeton, he did not romp off with scholastic honors, as he did at Pingree. After two and a half years on the campus, he flunked out. He attempted to find temporary haven at Columbia University, but mathematics and physics were no easier to digest at Morningside Heights. He then took refuge in Philadelphia as a bank clerk. At night, he donned the sacred sock and buskin, those are the symbols of comedy and tragedy, 
At the Hedgerow Theatre, when his father heard of the youngster's nocturnal transgressions, he veered him to the more righteous path as a respectable teacher of Latin, English, and history at Tome Institute, Maryland. By 1927, he had saved enough money to bid a lasting adieu to his pedagogical career and to accept a meager role in the touring company of Three Wise Fools, which presently led to a portly part and a more lucrative engagement in Ring Lardner's Elmer the Great. Since then, the Newton name has bobbed up in numerous Broadway bonanzas, including George M. Cohan's Gambling and The Man Who Came to Dinner, which also featured Mary Wicks. He eventually made his way to movies and later television, where he appears in the Lights Out episode, The Emerald Lavalier, the Suspense episodes, The Tip and The Third One, the Inner Sanctum episodes, Burial at High Point, The Landslide and The Fatal Hour, and the craft theater version of Rod Serling's Patterns. He is in six total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and one episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. His next is The Hidden Thing, episode number 34. But unfortunately, Theodore Newton died in 1963 at the age of 58. Now, I wanted to play a clip each for Carol and Theodore, even though neither one of them has any lines in this episode. So I decided, when in doubt, go to Perry Mason. Here's Carol in the case of the fraudulent photo. Just so I'm not making a mistake, Miss Matthews, you are the county auditor's secretary. And you're district attorney of Waring County. Where do we go from there? Well, on the phone you told me you had some information on the Northport Hospital graft. What's in it for me? Well, I have no money to pay you. It's a matter of civic duty. <laughs> civic duty, my eye. You can make a career out of this. I can make enemies. It'll cost you $500. Well, I'll have to pay you out of my own pocket. As long as it's negotiable. And here's Theodore playing Hauser in the case of the substitute face. Tell me the truth. Have you got a better offer? Oh, no, sir. Well, in heaven's name, what is it? Well, I just thought that I'd like to take a little vacation with my family. <clears throat> well, the truth of the matter is, I need a little rest. Well, if your mind's made up, I don't suppose there's anything I can do about it. No, sir. <laughs> Have a good time, Hauser. Good luck. Thank you, sir. So now we know what the two of them sounded like. Let's get back to our flashback. I remember one night, they were supposed to go to his boss's house for dinner. So I got there at 7 o'clock, like I was supposed to. Mrs. Nash was picking on Mr. Nash something awful. It wasn't as if I was snooping or anything. She must have known I was standing there, but <laughs> that didn't stop her. Not for one minute. Yakety, yakety, yak. Mad as a wet hen she was. Poor Mr. Nash, you could see he was suffering, but didn't have a chance with Big Mouth. Of course, we have to take Lottie's word for it with the yakety-yak and the Big Mouth, because we never hear her voice at all. Still, she's clearly saying something as she walks over to her husband, who is sitting in a chair reading the paper, pulls the paper out of his hands, and leans over him. He responds by getting up and going over to the bar. Behind the bar... He pulls out two glasses and starts pouring drinks for the both of them. And behind him and the bar is a mirror, which allows us to see her, even though her back is turned to the camera. And uh, what was she blowing her top about this time? Well, I'll tell you, because she didn't want to go to the boss's house for dinner. Just because Mr. Nash asked her to change her dress 
You should have seen her, decked out like a showgirl or something. But she refused to get into something respectable. She'd rather go out someplace fancy the way she was than keep her husband on good terms with his boss. I won't even repeat some of the things she had to say. And that poor man, what he must have been going through. She even had the nerve to make him call his boss to say they couldn't come. The camera stays put as Mr. Nash goes around the bar to go to the telephone to call his boss. But Robert Stevens makes good use of that mirror as we see Mr. Nash dialing his boss in the mirror. Clara haughtily keeps her back to her husband, but she is still facing the mirror, so we can see her smug, triumphant look. A look that turns into, as Lottie tells us, a laugh. And do you know what she was doing while he was calling? She just laughed. Well, she could afford to. She won. I couldn't keep my mouth shut any longer, and I let her have it. I simply told her that she didn't deserve a man like Mr. Nash. And she had the nerve to get sore about it, even though I was right. It might have ended up in a real hair-pulling contest if it hadn't been for Mr. Nash, but such a gentleman. He just couldn't stand by and let her abuse me. So from the point of view that the flashback gives us, Lottie is the hero. She steps in to defend Mr. Nash. Clara is the aggressor. She's the one that grabs Lottie by the arm. When Mr. Nash steps in to break it up, Clara is the one who, exasperated, leaves the frame, leaving Lottie and Mr. Nash together to start to bond in what Lottie hopes is a romantic way. So Lottie tries to paint herself as the hero with Mr. Nash as the victim, and then Mr. Nash is the hero with Lottie as the victim. But it's hard to forget that the real victim here is Clara. She's the one who's been murdered. He had to tear us apart, practically. But I guess he didn't really mind. I guess he was flattered that I stuck up for him because right then and there, he asked me how such a wonderful, understanding woman like me had stayed a widow so long. Like Clara, it's Mr. Nash who initiates contact. She grabs Lottie's arm. Mr. Nash puts his hand on Lottie's shoulder. And then he leaves, leaving Lottie alone in the frame, the star of her memory. Unfortunately... Lottie is not alone in her apartment. Unromantic Blanche is there. Oh, Blanche. He was divine. So what? So what what? So you don't think he meant anything personal? I mean, about you being so wonderful and still single and everything? Who knows what he meant? Oh, Lottie, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. And at your age... My age, his age, same age. Give a little, take a little. Besides, who'd have him, even if he asked me? That I'd like to see. Oh. Well, don't kill yourself laughing, Blanche. I may be a size 14, but I could get to be a size 10 for him. For a man like that, I could even get to be beautiful. For a man like that, a woman would do anything. Just anything. Lottie, you didn't... Didn't what? You didn't kill her. What? And we go to commercial. But it does bring up a question. Who are our suspects here? There are only seven characters in the entire show. Clara is the victim. 
The police sergeant is the police sergeant. He didn't do it. Blanche and Janie have no actual connection to the Nashes at all. So that leaves us with three. Lottie, Mr. DeMario, and Mr. Nash. Lottie would be an interesting solution. But the fact that Blanche even brings it up right here at the commercial break means to me that she's innocent. So we're down to Mr. DeMario and Mr. Nash. We return from commercial with one of those great Robert Stevens close-ups, this time of a chocolate cake. Lottie and Janie are in the kitchen, and Janie offers her mother more cake. But Lottie says she's cutting down. You know, Jenny, you wouldn't believe it, but when your father and me was married, I weighed only 98 pounds. Mm -hmm. Used to call me Peanut. Used to brag about my figure to everybody. Oh, in a nice way, of course. Funny how a woman lets herself go when there's no man around. Lottie sends Janie off to the drugstore to get the latest papers. And after Janie leaves, she looks at herself in the mirror. We see her there, just as we earlier saw Clara in the mirror. And the doorbell buzzes. Oh, for goodness sake. Person has no privacy around here. She answers the door, and it's... Mr. DeMario. You mind if I come in? He does, and he shuts the door behind him. Now, we'll see him later on in a flashback in which he won't speak. But note that here he does speak, because now we are very solidly in reality. And that reality with the ominous music ending at Mr. DeMario's entrance, with him shutting the door, with the fact that he knows Lottie is alone. No, no, of course not. My daughter... I just saw her going down the street, so I know you're alone. And the way he towers over her sure gives us the impression that he's the murderer and he's come to murder Lottie. To, to what do I owe the pleasure of this visit, Mr. DeMario? Pleasure. I just dropped in to give you a little piece of advice. What about? About the murder of Clara Nash. I don't know anything about that. Yeah, I know. He grabs her by the arm, just as Clara grabbed her by the arm in the flashback. And it's looking more and more like her demise is imminent. But instead... But you've got an overworked imagination. Clara used to tell me how you like to dream things up. She thought it was very funny. And they might not be so funny now. I've already told them everything I know, and I didn't tell them anything That's but the truth. That's what I'm worried about. When you run out of the truth, what are you going to say then? Nothing. Nothing at all. You just keep repeating that, Mrs. Slocum. Could mean a whole lot to your future. Now, I think we're supposed to believe that that is a threat to come back and kill her. But since he had a perfect opportunity to kill her now and he doesn't, as far as I'm concerned, that clears him. And if Mr. DeMario is cleared, the only other reasonable suspect is Mr. Nash. Before we go any further, let's say goodbye to Michael and Sarah, who played Mr. DeMario. We saw him before as the Butcher in episode 18, Shopping for Death, and as Mr. Dizar in episode 29, The Orderly World of Mr. Appleby. This is his last appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and I'm sorry to see him go. We crossfade to later, and it appears that Blanche has moved in. She's playing solitaire on the dining room table, preventing Janie from putting the tablecloth on. And we soon find out that Lottie isn't even there. Say, where's your mother, anyway? It's almost dinner time. Well, she can't be out much longer. As soon as the store's closed, she's got to come home. Huh? What a good girl you are, always waiting for your mother. 
Like the other night, for instance. It was real nice of you to wait till she got home. What time was it, anyway? She got in around 2 a.m. You're sure, because you were up? No, I'm not sure. Uh -huh. Then how can you be sure? I'm not. It's just that she said she got in then. Then you wouldn't know if she went out again. Really, Mrs. Armstetter, why don't you stick to solitaire? Janie is played by Reba Tassell in one of her last roles under her real name. Shortly after this, she takes on the stage name of Rebecca Wells, not to be confused with the daughter of Orson Wells and Rita Hayworth, who was only 12 years old at the time. Reba was born in Philadelphia. Her only sibling was the fashion designer Gustav Tassell. Wikipedia says in 1944 she was the recipient of a $500 tuition award from the Theater Guild to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. This is from the Bridgeport Telegram of February 21, 1951. Susan Douglas stars as Miss Cinderella in tomorrow night's Big Town drama, which was inspired by the experience of Reba Tassell, the TV Cinderella girl who made such a hit on Studio One last month. Now, I can't tell you what TV's Cinderella Girl means, but I can tell you that that splash she made on Studio One led to a whole lot of TV appearances in the 1950s and early 60s, including on Lights Out, Captain Video and the Video Rangers, Robert Montgomery Presents, Lux Video Theater, Gunsmoke, The Millionaire, Mike Hammer, Wagon Train, Bat Masterson, and The Californians. In 1961, as her brother was making a name for himself designing clothes for Jackie Kennedy, Reba, now Rebecca, was divorcing her husband of 15 years, marrying Don Weiss three days after the divorce, whom we've seen as the director of Santa Claus and the 10th Avenue Kid and The Big Switch. Rebecca's credits on IMDb stop in 1964. So what did Rebecca do after that? Well, one of her daughters from her first marriage became the actress Gwen Wells. And in an article entitled Fashion World is Past for Gwen Wells, She's Acting, in the September 21, 1974 edition of The Times of Shreveport, Louisiana, we find this. Her mother, Rebecca Wells, Gus's younger sister, has made a name for herself over the past seven years as the designer of exuberant, madly feminine, casual clothes. Now, sadly, her daughter Gwen died in 1993 at the age of 42. Rebecca herself died in 2017 at the age of 89. She is in four Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes altogether. Her next is A Man Greatly Beloved, episode 33 of season two, which also has a teleplay by Sarah Rudley. And in that episode, she is credited as Rebecca Wells. Now, since I played a Perry Mason clip for both Carol Matthews and Theodore Newton, here's Rebecca in one of her five Perry Mason appearances, The Case of the Stuttering Bishop. Where do you come from? The Midwest. Where in the Midwest? Des Moines. What was your father's first name? Paul. And your mother's? Vivian. Is either of them alive? No, they were both killed in an auto accident about eight months ago. Do you have any unusual birthmark? You'll have to forgive the catechism, my dear, but I had to be sure. Suppose I told you that you were the grandchild of a multimillionaire. What would you say to that? I better get you a doctor. All right. 
It's at this point in our episode that Lottie comes back from the store, all puffed up with her new celebrity. Jamie, what do you think? A lady at the hairdresser asked me for my autograph, and the man at the corner said I ought to sell my story to the Chronicle. Lottie has a new hairdo, though it looks about the same to me, and she has bought a dress for herself that is much too young for her, as Blanche is quick to point out. Say, what all did you buy, Lottie? Oh, nothing really. Oh! Oh! Jane, it's for you. On second thought, it's too young for you. Size 10? I don't get it. Well, you will. With this, I'm gonna lose pounds like water. Wait, I'll show you. Lottie has also bought an exercising device, and as she attempts to use it, the police sergeant shows up again. Well, supposing we go through the whole thing again, right from the start. Read me what I said yesterday. That's not exactly the idea, Mrs. Slocum. It's a cross-examination. That's where they catch you if you're lying. Shh. Fire away. I'll answer your questions. Thank you, ma'am. Let's start with DeMario. DeMario? Yes. He says that he brought Mrs. Nash home at approximately 1.45 a.m. Now, does that check with you? Check? Do you have anything further to say about this? No. And he left immediately after with you in the car, right? Right. What did he talk about on the way home? Nothing. Nothing? Nothing. Well, didn't he say anything when he dropped you off? Nothing. Nothing? Nothing! Well, he must have said something when he dropped you off, Mrs. Slocum. Yes. <laughs> he said good night. Now, look. DeMario has been unable to account for his time from then until 4 a.m. Now, exactly what time did you get home? You can't prove it, Lottie. Now, don't say another word until you see a lawyer. I don't need a lawyer. I answered all the questions. I'm sick. I've got a headache. I wish you'd go away. Well, apparently the sergeant does go away because the scene segues to later with Lottie in her bedroom, an ice bag again on her head. But before we go there, we've looked at the other five actors in this episode. Let's look at the big two. Mary Wicks was born Mary Wickenhauser. Rotten Tomatoes says of her, A tall, lanky character actress, Wicks was a durable and invaluable comedy player of innumerable housekeepers, nurses, and nuns. With her gawky frame, deliciously angular features, and famous recessed chin, she wisecracked, busybodied, and nosed her way through almost 20 Broadway plays, hundreds of stock productions, 10 TV series, countless small-screen guest spots, and nearly 50 feature films. Wikipedia says her parents were theater buffs and took her to plays from the time she could stay awake through a matinee. An excellent student, she skipped two grades and graduated at 16 and then was accepted into Washington University in St. Louis, where, by the way, her papers are today. Although she had planned a career in law, a favorite professor encouraged her to try drama and she shifted direction. Wicks's first Broadway appearance was in Mark Connolly's The Farmer Takes a Wife in 1934 with Henry Fonda. She began acting in films in the late 1930s and was a member of the Orson Welles troupe, the Mercury Theater on the Air. One of her earlier significant film appearances was in The Man Who Came to Dinner, reprising her stage role of Nurse Preen. Just what does this mean? It means, Mr. Whiteside, that I am leaving. My address is on the desk inside. You can send me a check. 
You realize, Miss Preen, this is completely unprofessional. I do, indeed. I am not only walking out on this case, Mr. Whiteside, I am leaving the nursing profession. I became a nurse because all my life, ever since I was a little girl, I was filled with the idea of serving a suffering humanity. After one month with you, Mr. Whiteside, I am going to work in a munitions factory. From now on, anything that I can do to help exterminate the human race will fill me with the greatest of pleasure. Mr. Whiteside, if Florence Nightingale had ever nursed you, she would have married Jack the Ripper instead of founding the Red Cross. Good day. She later played Miss Preen in the 1949 Ford Theater Hour TV version and the 1972 Hallmark Hall of Fame version. IMDb says her abrupt tell-it-like-it-is demeanor made her a consistent audience favorite on every medium for over six decades. TV holds a vault full of not-to-be-missed vignettes, where she served as a brusque foil to many a top TV comic star. Case in point, who could possibly forget her merciless ballet taskmaster, Madame Lamond, putting Lucille Ball through her rigorous paces at the ballet bar in a classic I Love Lucy episode. Madame Ricardo, I am afraid you have not quite had the experience I had hoped for. Well, I guess I am a little rusty. I think we should go to the bar. Oh, good, because I'm awful thirsty. <laughs> Madame, this bar. Oh, I thought you meant... Take uh... <laughs> place at the bar. Feet in first position. Now, in the first place, your posture is atrocious. Shoulders back, hips under, stomach in, chest out, chin up, knees straight. <laughs> Even with the bar. Even with the bar? Even with the bar. Now then, lower the leg slowly to the floor. <laughs> Madame, the leg down. Abba! 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 You have great talent. I have? But there is much to do if I am to get you in shape for the opening. Oh. Now then, at the bar, feet in first position, shoulders back. Keeps under, stomach in, chest out, chin up, knees straight. Now then, plie! Five hundred times! Mary was good friends with Lucy, and she also appeared on The Lucy Show and Here's Lucy. As for her films... Wikipedia says she attracted attention in Now Voyager, 1942, as the wisecracking nurse who helped Betty Davis's character during her mother's illness. I expect you're Miss Charlotte. Uh, yes, I am. I heard the car and tried to get down before you rang. Pickford's my name, Dora, not Mary. I'm the nurse. Now, we'd better not stand here gabbing. She's got ears like a cat, and she heard that bell as sure as preaching. What's happened to Mother? She's fit as a fiddle. She has a heart. She denies it, but she has one. But then at her age, who wouldn't have? It's nothing serious. Ought to last her for years if she doesn't get excited. How long has a nurse been necessary? Well, I wouldn't say a nurse has ever been necessary. Mostly, she's used us to fetch and carry. There were three or four others before me, just in and outers. I lasted a whole month. Of course, she gave me the sack today, but that's because you're home. Now, you'd better hurry right in because she'll be waiting. When she waits, she gets mad. When she gets mad, that means brush the smelling salt. Well, after sitting in their old dress for tonight's party. That is, except for a gown, just as cute as a little red wagon. Well, if you need any help, I'll be on the floor above packing my duds. I'll see you later. She's in June Bride, also with Betty Davis. Who Done It with Abbott and Costello. White Christmas, 
with Bing Crosby, Danny Kaye, Rosemary Clooney, and Vera Ellen. Welcome to Columbia Inn. What sort of accommodations would you like? I can offer you a fairly wide choice. Any room in the inn, including mine. Oh, we're not here as guests. We're the Haines sisters. Oh. My friend and I are guests. We came up for the snow. <laughs> Where are you keeping it? Well, we take it in during the day. I'm terribly sorry, but I'm afraid we won't be able to use you. We'll pay you the half salary for canceling. Well, are things really that bad? We're using this ski toe to hang the wash on. And she's one of the pick-a-little, talk-a-little gossiping housewives in The Music Man. He left River City, the library building, but he left all the books to her. Revelings. Around this same time, she served as the live-action reference model for Cruella de Vil in Disney's 101 Dalmatians. On television, she originated the role of Mary Poppins in 1949. She won an Emmy nomination in 1961 for her work on The Gertrude Berg Show. Telegram so early in the morning? Always gives me a creepy feeling. Ah, could be good news. That's true. Ah, I'm sure it's good news. So am I. So there's no need to be afraid to open it? None at all. So open it. That's for you, Mrs. G. Can you from who? What happened? Who no, died? Probably nothing. Nothing you can put on a postcard. She is in episodes of M.A.S.H., The Love Boat, Murder, She Wrote, and Kolchak, The Night Stalker. Look. It's obvious. It's the same as what we found. What's in it? Hydrochloric acid, acetone. Hydrochloric acid, why? Hydrochloric acid is a digestive juice. An acetone. And bone marrow. Bone marrow? Animal or human? Animal. All of our animals who were killed here showed puncture marks at the major bone joints, and every last dram of marrow had been extracted from their bones. Hydrochloric you mean they ate the bone marrow? It would seem that somebody ate the marrow and threw up. She was a regular on the sitcom Doc and on the kids' program, Sid and Marty Croft's Sigmund and the Sea Monsters. Johnny! Scott! <laughs> You're supposed to be studying. Now come in the house this minute. Draft, that's Zelda again. I wish she'd keep her mouth shut. Boy, do you hear me? <laughs> but I got the job done. <laughs> no, Sheldon, I didn't mean it. I wish to cancel my last wish. Cancel? Cancel? Oh, well. <laughs> oh, no. What did you do to Zelda? I said cancel the wish, not Zelda. Oh, it's going to be one of those days. <laughs> <laughs> now get rid of the gag. Oh. <laughs> I could have sworn. No, couldn't have happened. Whatever happened just did not happen. Wikipedia says that Mary's career had a resurgence in the late 1980s and 1990s. She was cast as the mother of Shirley MacLaine's character in the film Postcards from the Edge and portrayed Marie Merkin in the television movie and series adaptations of the Father Dowling Mysteries. And one of her most notable roles was as Sister Mary Lazarus in Sister Act. It's a mouth jabber. Vanity. A progressive convent? Sounds awful. I like my convent in Vancouver, out in the woods, 
wasn't all modern like some of these newfangled convents. We didn't have electricity. Cold water, bare feet, those were nuns. Sounds wonderful. <laughs> it was hell on earth. I loved it. This place is a Hilton. She's in one other episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, Toby, episode six of season two. And Mary Wicks died in 1995 at the age of 85. TCM.com says, with her salty humor, crackling New York accent, and seen-it-all demeanor, Thelma Ritter was one of the most accomplished and dependable character actresses in American film. Throughout a 21-year screen career, she worked numerous variations on her standard character of a wry, salt-of-the-earth everywoman and was equally convincing as lowly maid or wealthy dowager. Thelma Ritter was born on Valentine's Day in 1902. Axel Nissen, in the book Actresses of a Certain Character, says, Money was tight in the Ritter family, and Thelma learned early to fend for herself. Her dream was to attend the prestigious American Academy of Dramatic Arts. To that end, she started working and saving, finally being accepted into the class of 1922. Ritter did not graduate with her class. She had to go back to work. But 40 years later, she would be the first recipient of the AADA Alumni Award. Thelma had a rather middling stage career in the 1920s. She married fellow actor Joseph Moran in 1927 and then decided to take a hiatus from acting to raise her two children. Her husband changed professions in the 30s, first of all becoming an agent and then later becoming an advertising executive. At that point, they were doing well financially, but according to Encyclopedia.com, Thelma felt that suburban domesticity was no substitute for show business. I missed it, and I wanted to get back into it somewhere, she said later. In 1944, she began making the rounds in radio, and within a year, she was featured on such programs as the Theater Guild of the Air, Big Town, and the Aldrich Family. She didn't get her big break for films until 1946, when director George Seaton, who was married to one of Thelma's high school friends, cast her in a small role in Miracle on 34th Street. What do you want for Christmas, Peter? I want a fire engine just like the big ones, only smaller, has a real hose that squirts well at water, and I won't do it in the house, I'll only do it in the backyard. I promise. Macy's ain't got me. Nobody's got me. Well, Peter, I can tell you're a good boy. You'll get your fire engine. Oh, thank you very much. You see? I told you he'd get me one. Mm, that's fine. That's just dandy. Listen, you wait over there. Mama wants to thank Santa Claus, too. Say, listen, what's the matter with you? Don't you understand English? I tell you, Macy's ain't got any. Nobody's got any. I've been all over. My feet are killing me. Fine thing, promising the kid. Now, you don't think I would have said that unless I'm sure, do you? You can get those fire engines at Schoenfeld's on Lexington Avenue. Only eight fifty. a wonderful bargain. Schoenfeld's? I don't get it. Oh, I keep track of the toy market pretty closely. Does that surprise you, sir? Surprise me. Macy, sending people to the store. Are you kidding me? She made such an impression that things took off from there. Joseph Mankiewicz cast her in his A Letter to Three Wives and then kept her in mind and cast her in All About Eve, which earned her her first Oscar nomination. You don't like Eve, do you? You want an argument or an answer? An answer. No. Why not? Now you want an argument. She works hard. Night and day. She's loyal and efficient. Like an agent with only one client. 
She thinks only of me. Doesn't she? Well, let's say she thinks only about you anyway. Over the next nearly 20 years, she built up an impressive resume of films both dramatic and comedic, such as Pillow Talk. I'd know that voice of yours anywhere. You know me? You are my inspiration, Alma. Oh, the telephone. I, I'm one of your most devoted listeners. Why, thank you. That's all right. Oh, uh, well, couldn't we, um, it's a little chilly out here. Couldn't we stop in and have a drink somewhere? Oh, no, I don't usually, I, well, I might have one just to be sociable. Good, good. I know a nice little bar right down the street. I know a better one. The Misfits. I will never understand cowboys. All crazy about animals. And the minute they got nothing else to do, they run up in those mountains and bother those poor wild horses. Shame on you. Horses? Oh, uh, sure, honey. Nevada Mustang. Used to ship them all over the United States. Uh, not many left. We'd have to pick up another man. Dayton Rodeo's on today. We ought to be able to pick up a fella down there. It's an idea. You never saw a rodeo. Mm -mm. Oh, you gotta see a rodeo. I'd love to. Will you come too? I'm all set. How the West was won. Well, it's been a pleasure to meet you, Miss Clegg. May I say, I have never seen a woman with more beautiful hair. What a prize catch it'll make. Hanging from the waist of an Indian. Beauty alone in the wilderness. And who's to protect you? No one. Not one person won't be looking after himself. Well, good day, ladies. Good day. Nobody ever said that to me before. What? That I had such, such beautiful hair. You know something? I got a hunch you're gonna draw men like fish to the bait. Maybe I can catch one of them while they swim by. And the Birdman of Alcatraz. I want to talk to you about her. About Stella? Your association with her will bring you nothing but trouble. Uh, I don't know what you mean. I thought from the first she was the wrong kind of a woman for you to align yourself with. She's worked her heart out for me. She saved my bacon. All right, she was of use temporarily, but she served her purpose. And now if you'll follow my advice, she'll get rid of her. In all, she was nominated for the Best Supporting Actress Oscar six times for All About Eve, The Mating Season, With a Song in My Heart, Pick Up on South Street, Pillow Talk, and The Birdman of Alcatraz. But she never won. She did, however, win a Tony Award in 1958, she took Broadway by storm, winning accolades for her portrayal of the alcoholic waterfront harpy Marthy in the musical New Girl in Town, based on Eugene O'Neill's Anna Christie. Critic Tom Donnelly of the New York World Telegram and Sun hailed Ritter as a small bedraggled tigress burning brightly and hilariously through the night. And she won an Emmy Award, playing the mother in The Catered Affair on Goodyear Television Playhouse. She was also nominated for three Golden Globe Awards for All About Eve, The Mating Season, and Boeing Boeing, but she never won that either. 
This is her only appearance in Alfred Hitchcock Presents, but she does have a very slight connection to an earlier podcast. She's in Move Over Darling, which I referenced in episode four, Don't Come Back Alive. Oh, good heavens. It's true. Oh, Ellen. Oh, you're alive. Yes, darling, I am. I am. Oh, come on, let me help you up. Oh, I tried to call you oh. to break it to you gently, oh. but I, I couldn't get through. Oh. oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. Pinch me. Oh, maybe I better get you a sip of brandy. Make it a fifth. Alan! Where have you been? On an island in the Pacific. And then on a submarine. But, of course, her main connection to Hitchcock is her wonderful performance as Stella in Rear Window. A New York State sentence for a peeping Tom is six months in the workhouse. Oh, hello, Stella. And they got no windows in the workhouse. You know, in the old days, they used to put your eyes out with a red-hot poker. Any of those bikini bombshells you're always watching worth a red-hot poker? Oh, dear. We become a race of peeping Toms. What people ought to do is get outside their own house and look in for a change. Yes, sir. How's that for a bit of homespun philosophy? Reader's Digest, April 1939. Well, I only quote from the best. Well, you don't have to take my temperature this morning. Quiet. See if you can break 100. You know, I should have been a gypsy fortune teller instead of an insurance company nurse. I got a nose for trouble. Can smell it 10 miles away. You heard of that market crash in 29? I predicted that. Oh, yes, how'd you do that stuff? Oh, simple. I was nursing a director of General Motors. Kidney ailment, they said. Nerves, I said. Then I asked myself, what's General Motors got to be nervous about? Overproduction, I says. Collapse. When General Motors has to go to the bathroom 10 times a day, the whole country's ready to let go. Thelma Ritter died of a heart attack in 1969, seven days shy of her 67th birthday. Let's get back to Lottie in her bedroom with the ice bag on her head. Janie comes in to see that she's all right. She is going to take over Lottie's babysitting job for the evening, and she wants to make sure her mom will be okay. Lottie assures her that she will, and Janie leaves. As soon as she leaves, Lottie sits up, and she begins writing a letter to Mr. Nash. We get a voiceover of Lottie reading the letter as she writes. And this letter takes us into another flashback. Dear Mr. Nash, the time has come when I need you. I'm all mixed up, especially after what happened the night of the murder. I like to keep myself busy when I'm babysitting. Makes the time go by quicker. It was a good book, very romantic. Couldn't wait to find out what happened. So after I finished the book, I looked around for something else to do. Now, just when Lottie says she likes to keep herself busy, we see in the flashback that she's reclining in an armchair, eating a chicken leg. And when she says it was a good book, and she couldn't wait to find out what happened, and that she finished the book, we see that she is only at the very beginning of the book. She checks the ending of the book, and then she puts the book down. So the flashback this time seems to be contradicting what Lottie is saying in the letter. Does that mean that we are actually seeing what really happened this time in the flashback? Could be. I have no idea how empty the life of a babysitter is and how quiet 
Not as if I were a teenager with lots of friends to keep me company. Bobby was sound asleep. Oh, such an angel. She looks in the bedroom, and again, we never do see Bobby. And with a mother like that. But again, you're his father. I guess it takes two to tango, if you get what I mean. That woman sure was some housekeeper. Never saw such a mess. She opens up a desk armoire, which is filled with books and papers pushed all over the place. And there's a small clock also in there, tilted on its side. It looks like it says 10 minutes to 2, which jives with what DeMario has said to the police. He says that he brought Mrs. Nash home at approximately 1.45 a.m. Now, does that check with you? Check. Lottie goes on to check the dust on a bureau, and then she goes into the closet, where she takes a handkerchief out of her coat pocket. The only other piece of clothing in that closet is a blonde beaver coat belonging to Clara. The camera moves inside the closet and looks out at Lottie in between the coats as she looks at both coats and then finally tries the beaver coat on. It was funny seeing the two of us hanging there, her and me. I remember when your coat used to be there too, Mr. Nash. I always used to hang mine next to it. <laughs> I guess you can tell by now I'm... I'm romantic. You always bought her such pretty things. Maybe it's not nice of me to talk about the dead. And while she's glorying in wearing that coat, Mr. Nash enters the apartment from behind in a nice chilling moment. Oh, you gave me quite a turn coming in like that, Mr. Nash, but you had your key and why not? You pay the rent. I could smell you'd been drinking, but who could blame you with all your troubles? You weren't even sore at me for trying on the coat. He does, though, take the coat off of her and hang it back up in the closet. <laughs> Guess you never thought I could look so good. It's that blonde beaver. It does something for a woman. Even me. The camera moves out of the closet and follows Lottie and Mr. Nash. He stops in Bobby's room to check on him while she sits down to pour him a cup of coffee. It's all so cozy in her mind that it never even occurs to her how strange it is that he's showing up at almost 2 o'clock in the morning. It was so cozy, just the two of us. Just as if it had always been that way. And then she came back. We heard them out there, her and that Mr. DeMario laughing. It was shameful the way those two were carrying on. Note how the music goes from dreamy to ominous as Clara and Mr. DeMario intrude on Lottie's little fantasy. It really hurt me to see the look on your face. It was nice of you not to want to be present when she came in with that boyfriend of hers. So Mr. Nash kisses Lottie on the forehead and then goes into Bobby's room. The camera pans over to the front door where Clara and DeMario share a high-spirited goodnight kiss. Quite a contrast to the chaste kiss that Mr. Nash has just given Lottie. No wonder she looks on so disapprovingly. That is the end of our flashback. But it's not the end of Lottie's letter. You knew you could trust me not to tell her you were in the bedroom. That doo-doo-doo is our cue to be surprised. I don't know about you, but I'm not surprised. Now Lottie gets to the point of her letter. Of course... I don't believe that you had anything to do 
with what happened later. But you see, it's the police I'm worried about, Mr. Nash. Maybe tomorrow they'll ask me about you. So I thought if we could get together, uh, you know, dinner for two, tete-a-tete. <laughs> This is the second time that the door buzzer has interrupted Lottie's romantic fantasies. Only this time it isn't Mr. DeMario. It's her dream come true. It's... Mr. Nash! Come in, come in! And just as if it's a continuation of Lottie's fantasy flashback, Mr. Nash doesn't speak. Mr. Nash never speaks, which also makes him creepier. Lottie tells Mr. Nash she was just writing a letter to him and that she'll go and get it. She runs into her bedroom, but he follows her there, and he closes the door. She hands him the letter, he opens it and reads it. And then, in a nice shot, we get the letter in close-up in his hands, with Lottie sitting behind doing her hair as Nash sets the letter on fire. I never was so surprised to see anybody in my life. Well, here it is. By special messenger. I was beginning to get worried, but I didn't tell them anything. Like I promised. Not a word. They never asked me if you were there the night of the murder, so I don't think it was wrong not to tell them anything. Well, Mr. Nash, whatever are you doing? We don't see Nash strangle Lottie, though we certainly hear it, because the camera moves away and focuses in on a close-up of that burning letter sitting in an ashtray. Now, for those of you who like to project past the ending, you have to be heartbroken, not only about Lottie's death, but at the thought of Janie coming home from babysitting, only to find her mother murdered. You also have to wonder if Mr. Nash gets away with it. After all, Lottie didn't tell a soul that he was there, and he has just burned her letter and silenced her. Well, Hitch takes care of that with a retribution outro, but he doesn't clear poor Mr. DeMario of the murders. So I prefer to leave things where they are at the end of the episode, with a close-up of the burning paper in the Robert Stevens style. We've all gotten very familiar with Robert Stevens' directing methods because this is his 13th episode after Premonition, Our Cook's a Treasure, Guilty Witness, The Cheney Vase, You Got to Have Luck, The Older Sister, Shopping for Death, Place of Shadows, The Perfect Murder, Portrait of Jocelyn, Never Again, and The Gentleman from America. We'll have plenty of opportunities to further study his style because he has 31 more Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes and five of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. His next is not the next episode, after three in a row, but rather the episode after that, The Hidden Thing, episode 34. On the other side of the coin are our teleplay and short story writers, both of whom are new to the show and both of whom are mysterious. The teleplay is by Serret Rudley. And besides the fact that IMDb lists her as Serret Tobias, it has no information on her other than her birth date and her death date. So I went searching for information on Serret Tobias, Serret Rudley, 
and came up empty until I found a blog by Frank Little. He was researching the British author Anne Cumming, and he says this, Felicity Anne Cumming was an adventuress who, it was noted, was first married to Richard Mason. He wrote three romantic novels on which successful films were based, the world of Susie Wong being the one that provided him with a pension for life. The IMDb has no references to Mason marriages, but I recalled an indie obit and managed to find it from a back issue. The obituarist, Jack Adrian, recorded that Mason was married three times, but tantalizingly gives no names. When all else fails, try Wikipedia. And sure enough, there is an entry for Mason, which lists Cumming as his first wife, Margot Maggie Wolfe as his widow and mother of his two children, and in between, Sarah Rudley, with whom he went to raise sheep on an estate in Wales. The description of Ms. Rudley as a writer of television teleplays for Alfred Hitchcock Presents was intriguing. There are no biographical details for her on IMDb. She suddenly appears as a screenwriter in 1956, adapting other people's original material, until 1959 when she signs off with an original screenplay. That would fit with a departure for Britain in the late 50s, especially as she also has a 1958 credit for a contribution to ABC's Armchair Theatre. In 1968, she contributed to Journey to the Unknown, a British anthology series produced by Joan Harrison. So Sarah Rudley effectively disappeared after 1968. She almost came from nowhere, but not quite. In 1949, a well-meaning but unfortunately untheatrical color problem play was put on in Brooklyn. How Long Till Summer ran for just seven performances. The authors were Serrett and Herbert Rudley. Herbert Rudley had a long career on stage, starting in 1926, and became a stalwart character actor on screen until 1983. He had no other writing credits of any kind that I can discover, so presumably the play was virtually all Serrett's work. It turns out that a Sarah Tobias became Rudley's mistress in Hollywood while he was still married to Anne Loring, causing an interesting court case. A bit more digging turned up a 1948 marriage between Rudley and Tobias, which had not been listed on IMDb previously. That led to a date and place of birth, 26th September 1917 in Colorado Springs, which ties in with a U.S. Census return of 1940 showing a Sarah Tobias, the wife of a medical doctor in Los Angeles. So I have clearly identified the second wife of Richard Mason with the young housewife and mother in Los Angeles who took to writing screenplays. But where did she come from? Here is where it gets murkier. There is no Sarah listed among the Colorado births, but there is a Sarah Rood of the right birth date. She takes a couple of journeys by sea with her mother, traveling under her maiden name of Teichman, then nothing. This is almost certainly the same person, but I cannot make the Milton Tobias connection. And what became of Sarah Mason? Presumably she returned to the States, or did she go to Italy? Jack Adrian reported that Richard Mason remained on good terms with both his first two wives. There is more to discover here. And then Frank gets a comment from Curiosa Mente, who said, Maybe I could help with the story of Sarah Rude, a.k.a. Sarah Hirsch, a.k.a. Sarah Tobias, a.k.a. Sarah Rudley, a.k.a. Sarah Mason, a.k.a. Sarah Russo. There was another name between Rudley and Mason, but I cannot recall it. She died 16 April 1976 in New York Hospital following a mistaken heart surgery. She lived in Italy since 1964, staying in Milan, Stromboli, and Klosters, Switzerland. Her late husband Armando was said to be the most cunning lawyer in Milan at the time. So there you have it, the story of Sarah Rudley, as put together by Frank Little. This is the first of nine Alfred Hitchcock Presents 
Her next is Mr. Blanchard's Secret, episode 13 of season 2. That's also Emily Neff's next episode. She has three total Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes and one episode of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. I'm not sure I would have found anything on Emily Neff if it wasn't for our good friend Jack Seabrook, who managed to contact Emily's daughter, Susan Bernard Volker. Here is some of a letter that Susan wrote to Jack about her mother, which you can find in the August 2018 edition of Jack's blog at barebonesez.blogspot.com. My mother, Emily Neff Bernard, was born in Denton, Texas on September 22, 1922. She came from a literary family. Her father had a bachelor's and master's degree from Yale and a master's and doctor's degree from Harvard. Most of his life was devoted to college administrative work and teaching. For 25 years, Dr. Neff was the head of the Department of English at the University of Utah. Emily's mother was the youngest of 10 children and grew up on a farm in Missouri. At age 18, she got her teaching certificate and taught for a year in a one-room, one-teacher school. She and my grandfather were avid readers and passed on their love of books to my mother. My mother grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. I believe she started writing at an early age. I have a little blue enamel vase she was awarded in 1936, age 14, by the William M. Stewart School for first prize short story. After high school, she went east to Smith College, where she earned a B.A. with a major in English. Initially, she was interested in newspaper writing. For one year, she was a reporter for the New Britain Daily Herald, but she wanted very much to move to New Orleans and work for the Times-Picayune. Her plan was to start out in New Orleans and then move on to San Antonio and San Francisco. I have a series of humorous letters between her and the managing editor of the TP, where she is trying to convince him to hire her in spite of her inexperience, out-of-state status, and the fact that she was a girl reporter. These letters are all signed with her nickname, Red Neff. Eventually, she went to New Orleans, had an interview, and was hired. She never made it to San Antonio or San Francisco because she met my father, Pierre Victor Bernard, who was a city editor on the paper, got married, and had three daughters. All her life, she loved New Orleans. Emily was a reporter for the Times-Picayune for two years. Over the next two decades, her fiction writing was sporadic, not prolific. Perhaps the reason it is difficult to find out anything about her is that she didn't seek recognition and wrote more as a hobby than anything else. Her genre was the short story, but she wrote some clever little poems and even once collaborated with a friend on a musical, which they didn't finish. A favorite of mine was a children's story called Garfield the Absent-Minded Goat, which was never published, and I'm not sure she even submitted it. I'm pretty sure the stories that Alfred Hitchcock bought were all originally published in magazines, and I believe he bought them through her agent in New York, Macintosh and Otis. I don't think my mother ever had any personal contact with Hitchcock. Of course, she was delighted he used her stories on his show, and it was always a source of pride in our family. Still is. My mother stopped writing sometime in the 70s, I think, when she became increasingly interested in New Orleans politics. She started her own public relations firm with mostly political accounts. My older sister worked with her, and when Emily retired, my sister took over the business. When we were growing up, my mother was popular with our friends who saw her as talented, glamorous, and hip. She was active in our schooling. She directed several plays when I was a brownie and produced and directed talent shows at our high school. She taught sewing to the neighborhood children, and one summer she helped me and a friend write a neighborhood newspaper, The Nosy News. It was Emily's wish to make it to the year 2000, but she fell a few months short. She died of a stroke on August 22, 1999, in Mandeville, Louisiana, across Lake Pontchartrain from New Orleans. She was 76. 
I asked my friends who knew her to tell me the first word or words that came to mind when thinking about my mother. These were the words. Red, red lipstick and hair, intellectual, intimidating, haughty, elegant, reserved, critical, stubborn, intelligent. And Susan's husband, Tom, also sent a note to Jack. What about Emily? I could never pin her down. Creative, insightful, intelligent Emily. She could be charming. She could be dismissive. She could be engaging or remote, at once inviting and unapproachable. Her smiles played across subtle wit, thoughtful observation, and cutting sarcasm. In Emily, strength of character shaded over into hard willfulness. But it wasn't just that she was self-centered. Her center was herself. Like all of us, there was much more to Emily than what met the eye. To me, she was a mystery. Something essential remained hidden, the center. She eluded me. I never saw more than a few facets of her infinite variety. I wonder whether anyone did. Susan lists the published short stories by her mother. There are ten in all. The Babysitter was published in the May 1953 issue of Cosmopolitan. Just as Emily didn't seek recognition, as Susan put it, her story flies under the radar here. One reason for that is that Marilyn Monroe is on the magazine's cover. The byline being Marilyn Monroe, Hollywood's most valuable property. Also listed on the cover, Why Men Picked the Wrong Women, Alcatraz Birdman, An Amazing Lifetime in Prison, and A Complete Mystery Novel Plus Six Great Stories. The complete mystery novel is Suspicion Island by John D. MacDonald, and one of the six great short stories is by a familiar name, Stanley Ellen. But another one of the six great short stories is Emily Neff's The Babysitter. Cosmopolitan lists it as a short, short story. And once you eliminate all the gloss that they put on around it, it really is only about two pages. There's a full-page illustration by Alex Ross, not to be confused with the illustrator of the comic book miniseries Marvels. The illustration here is of a young woman tastefully draped with a towel, drying herself off as she gets out of the bathtub. It really has nothing to do with the story, but clearly Alex Ross was desperate. The caption for the illustration reads, She remembered how lightheartedly poor Clara had prepared for her last date. The story is much the same as the episode, except it's pretty much boiled down to Lottie's conversation with Blanche, who doesn't get a first name here. But here's the thing. Neither Blanche nor Lottie are anywhere near as virtuous in the story as they are in the episode. Well, her friend said, an idea just came to me. If you really mean it about not sitting anymore, I wonder if you'd mind referring your customers to me. You have so many, and I'm behind on my payments for the television. You could have them back, you know, if you ever changed your mind. Why, the old vulture, Mrs. Slocum thought. That's a fine friend for you, waiting to grab your business the minute you're down. Oh, I don't know, she said. I had thought maybe Jane. So, Mrs. Armstetter is a little bit mercenary. But actually, Lottie is worse. There is no indication here that Lottie has any feelings of romance toward Mr. Nash. Instead... Even though we're told she has almost $2,000 in the bank that even Jane didn't know about, without her babysitting, there will be now no more deposits, just a slow dwindling. The prospect was painful. Now, it's no secret in the story. We find out very early on that Mr. Nash entered the apartment while Lottie was there. And learning about Lottie as we do, it's not a big surprise that what she plans to do in her letter is to blackmail him. Here's how the story ends. Finally, she drew some stationery from the drawer. 
her best heavy and plain. Dear Mr. Nash, she wrote, you can't imagine how shocked I was to hear about your wife, and I extend my deepest sympathy to you and your bereavement. Poor little buddy with no mother, such a good boy. My nerves are all on edge after last night, and I seriously fear that I can no longer continue my profession of babysitting, which is my only means of independent income. She thought a minute and then went on. Because of the upsetting experience, I know you will want to help me, as you are a charitable man and know the value of a dollar. A hundred a month would help keep the wolf from the door, like the saying goes. The police have been asking me a lot of questions, and I hope I don't break down under the strain, as I know there are certain things you would rather I didn't tell them. Hoping to hear from you at the earliest, I am your obedient servant, Lottie Slocum. The bedroom door opened as she was putting the letter in an envelope. Well, Jane, what does the paper say, she asked without looking up. I'll bet it's all over the front page, isn't it? She licked the flap and sealed it firmly. Did you get the aspirin? Then she looked up. Why, Mr. Nash, she said. In Alfred Hitchcock, A Life in Darkness and Light, Patrick McGilligan says, In mid-1921, Hitchcock moved up the ladder. His first picture as art director was probably Three Live Ghosts. McGilligan also lists Perpetua as a film in which Hitchcock was art director. So I fumbled the ball on both of those. I thought he was just the title designer. But now he has taken on the dual role of art director and title designer. McGilligan quotes cameraman Arthur C. Miller, who recalled meeting Hitchcock when he was an enterprising young art director. He says, I went along with him to a rather shabby residence where he spent some time bargaining with the woman of the house for all her old furniture to be replaced entirely by new. He used her old furniture to dress the set he had designed at the studio. McGilligan goes on to say that after Three Live Ghosts, Hitchcock art directed The Man from Home and The Spanish Jade, both shot in late 1921. So let's look at The Spanish Jade here. We'll look at The Man from Home next time. Here's a synopsis of the film from allmovie.com. This romantic drama, with a few comic touches, was filmed in Sevilla, Spain, the actual locale of the original novel by Maurice Hewlett. The Don Quixote-like story involves Gil Perez, a handsome young adventurer, played by David Powell, who saves pretty Manuela, played by Evelyn Brent, from the clutches of Esteban, a lusty gambler, played by Charles de Rochefort. The girl's wicked stepfather, played by Lionel Darragon, had sold her hand in marriage to Esteban. But when Esteban continues to pursue her, both Perez and an American, Oswald Manvers, played by comedian Harry Hamm, come to her aid. The gambler accidentally kills himself, and his father, Don Luis Ramones de Alavia, played by Mark McDermott, wants to see justice served. Manvers is accused, but to save him, Manuela takes the blame. It all winds up in court, and Manuela is sentenced to life in prison. But some obscure Castilian law, perhaps made up back in Hollywood, states that a woman may be released if someone present is willing to marry her. Manvers offers himself, but Manuela ends up wedded to Perez. Now, I don't have much more about this film, except a few comments from the Exhibitor's Herald, What the Picture Did for Me sections, from June 2nd, July 7th, and July 14th of 1923. These, you may recall, are all comments by theater owners. Charles Lee Hyde of the Grand Theater in Pierre, South Dakota, said, A good picture, but star nor story does not draw. Tenses Amuse, 
from the Blackman Theater in St. Joseph, Louisiana, said a very fair little program picture. Philip Rand of the Rex Theater in Salmon, Idaho, said, In spite of the knocks on this picture, I contend that it is very fine. True, it will not draw, being a foreign affair, but it holds the interest to the very end and is very artistic and dramatic. But George J. Cress of Hudson Theater in Rochester, New York, says, Poor picture. Not the kind for a neighborhood house to play. Business fell off a lot on this day. Like most of Hitchcock's films from this time period, the Spanish jade is lost. So, did my deep dive into The Babysitter raise my opinion? Yes, to some extent. It has good performances by all concerned, and solid directing by Robert Stevens, and I enjoy the meat of the story, that tug-of-war between Lottie's romanticism and Blanche's no-nonsense reality. It's a tug-of-war that doesn't exist in the short story, yet the short story is the stronger of the two because it doesn't sugarcoat and it doesn't hide information. It really does come down to just that. Lottie in the story is not likable. How do you make her appealing to the television audience of the 1950s instead of making her a blackmailer? As Lottie herself says, I guess you can tell by now I'm, I'm romantic. And yes, okay, she's still a blackmailer, but she's a blackmailer for love rather than a blackmailer for money. So what does it mean in this instance that she's romantic? It means she has this notion that Mr. Nash will be interested in her to the extent that she keeps quiet about his presence in the apartment. With her knowledge of Mr. Nash's whereabouts on the night of the murder, she must know that he is the most likely suspect. You can argue that her love for him blinds her to this. But her letter to Mr. Nash suggests otherwise. And even granting that love may be blind, I find it hard to accept that she doesn't tell anyone, that she puts off the police in two separate instances, that all alone she lets Mr. Nash into her apartment, knowing what she knows. All of this blindness gets her killed. And the episode seems to say that Blanche is right, that you shouldn't dream that you can get back into a size 10, that you should carp about not getting a potted plant, when the women's club sends you such nice flowers. And what's worse is that after the script and direction put us so firmly in Lottie's shoes, we believe that we are wearing them, we find out at the end that we don't even take the same size. Now let's get back to Hitch. I'm going to start this clip with the closing music, the moment where Mr. Nash murders Lottie, because I think the segue into the baby crying is in many ways a reaction to Lottie, the babysitter's sad fate. Now, the Alfred Hitchcock Presents Companion has some lines that are not in the outro on my DVD, and yet the outro on the DVD is seamless. So I suspect, once again, we're looking at the European version, and I will break Hitch off at the appropriate moment to fill in the lines from the Companion myself. Now, I suppose you babies who have just put the sitter to bed are wondering about Mr. Nash. He escaped in his automobile, but not for long. He was soon arrested for failing to yield the right of way. Well, he wasn't exactly arrested. You see, it was a train that he failed to yield to. And now, before I return, our special educational movie. Any child caught leaving the room will have to bring back a written excuse from the babysitter. Alfred Hitchcock presents Season 1, All About Eve, 
Pillow Talk, The Misfits, The Birdman of Alcatraz, How the West Was Won, Move Over Darling, The Music Man, Now Voyager, I Love Lucy, The Complete First Season, The Man Who Came to Dinner, White Christmas, Miracle on 34th Street, Sister Act, Kolchak the Night Stalker, Perry Mason Season 1, Volume 2, and Perry Mason Season 2, Volume 2, are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The episode of The Gertrude Berg Show, the episode of Sigmund and the Sea Monsters, and Hitch's actual intro for The Babysitter are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this podcast, please email me at shirdsmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D-S-M-A-A at aadl.org. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. Next time, episode 33, The Belfry, starring Jack Mullaney and Pat Hitchcock. And now, children, if you aren't naughty, and if the rabbit doesn't get drunk drinking too much carrot tea and fall on the elephant's trunk, next week I'll tell you another story. Good night. (laughs) 